Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to another edition of the Bruce Exclusive, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. You know, intellectual honesty is the name of the game. It's something I've been talking about for what feels like forever. And so because of that, I am going to go back now that the 2022 NFL draft is complete. And I'm going to examine my first round NFL mock draft. Let's see what I got right, what I got wrong, and more importantly, why I got them wrong, why I got them right. What do you think can be learned from the actions taken by these teams during the 2022 NFL draft? So without further ado, let's dive in. You can find this mock draft in its full visual aid form at buffalorumblings.com under Bruce's 22 NFL first round mock draft. So some things I got right. The first three picks right off the bat. The first three picks of the NFL draft went exactly as I predicted that they would. Trayvon Walker edged Georgia to the Jaguars at number one. Detroit Lions picked Aiden Hutchinson edged from Michigan. And the Houston Texans took Derek Stingley, a cornerback from LSU. Now, I think right off the bat, I think there's benefit to getting those first three right. And I think one of the things that you can learn about this is that projection over production continues to be a significant part of the NFL draft process. The Jaguars took Trevon Walker over Aiden Hutchinson because they believed in the ceiling. It shouldn't shock us when teams do this, but there's a certain subsection of NFL fandom that continually gets surprised when players like Trevon Walker end up being taken really, really high over players who were more productive in college. But projection over production continues to be something that dominates the NFL. As far as Detroit and Aiden Hutchinson, I predicted at the time that Dan Campbell would absolutely love Aiden Hutchinson and would be pounding the absolute table. In fact, the Detroit Lions actually mentioned after the draft that they made their pick a little too fast And the NFL was a little displeased with them. In case you were wondering if a lot of this stuff is actually theater, the answer is yes, a lot of it's theater. Because the Lions were like, great, we'll take Aiden Hutchinson. And the NFL's like, no, you need to wait. We need more drama. We need to give the analysts time to talk. Wait. 
At number three overall, Derek Stingley, Houston Texans. A lot of people thought, well, this is a Lovey Smith team. They might not value the man-to-man corner that Derek Stingley is. But it's not a Lovey Smith team. It's a Nick Casario team. I think one of the things we learned in the top three was we learned who really has significant influence. I really believe that the pick of Trevon Walker at number one is a sign that Trent Baalke has a lot of the sway. One of the narratives coming out before the draft was maybe there's a chance that Trent Baalke looks at Trevon Walker and thinks that he's Alden Smith. And for Houston, if Lovey Smith had his bearings, he probably wouldn't have taken a man-to-man corner given Lovey's propensities on the defensive side of the ball and the corners that he's historically had. But Nick Casario is the man pulling the strings there, which means he's going to look at that and say, Stephon Gilmore was a significant investment in New England. One of the only places where New England put real significant money was in man-to-man coverage corners. And we're going to go ahead and do that again. So I think that's one of the things that can be learned from the top three. If you listen to the picks and you can start to recognize what front offices are aligned with their coaching staffs, what front offices are not aligned with their coaching staffs, and who's really pulling the strings. Another thing they got right, Falcons and Drake London. So the Falcons and Drake London, they needed a wide receiver one, specifically someone who they can funnel a lot of targets through, who profiles as not a specialist, who profiles as someone you can target heavily in the pass game, someone who has the ability to create from themselves, someone who has ability to make contested catches, that's Drake London. Now, I think the fact that they passed on a quarterback is telling, but it wasn't something that we were shocked by because this wasn't a great quarterback class. The Saints trading up is something I got right, but I never bought that it was for a quarterback. I never, ever bought the fact that it was a quarterback. I think that a lot of people, when the Saints made their maneuver to acquire a first-round pick from the Philadelphia Eagles, they thought, oh, this is step one of two, and they're coming up the board to take a quarterback much like the Buffalo Bills did when they traded Cordy Glenn to move up the board to 12 with the Cincinnati Bengals, where they would then jump to number seven to take Josh Allen. But it wasn't a percolation up the board from the Saints. And I always thought that was kind of a sort of a weird narrative. I didn't think that they were coming up to get a quarterback. I think they wanted two significant position players and they might trade up from one of those picks, but it would be for a tackle or a receiver. Wouldn't be for a quarterback. So I was right, they did trade up, and they did take a tackle and a receiver, and they did take Chris Olave. I got all those things right. I just got the tackle wrong, and I got the order incorrect. I had them trading up to 12 and taking Evan Neal, and then standing pat at 16 and taking Chris Olave. They ended up with Olave and Trevor Penning. Next thing that Bruce actually got right, the Jets and Jermaine Johnson. I thought that they might try and add a pass rusher and it might be Jermaine Johnson across from Carl Lawson, who's coming back from an injury. However, I had the Jets taking Jermaine Johnson at 10, not 26. So they did better from a value standpoint than I had originally anticipated. I did think the Eagles were going to trade up and they did. They absolutely did trade up, but they traded up in front of Baltimore to get a nose tackle. I had them trading all the way up to six to take a wide receiver. Now, they did take a wide receiver 
They just used their first round pick to go get A.J. Brown. One of the key things about dealing with trade ups in the first round is you have to find people who make sense to trade back. Now, I thought it was the Panthers. I was wrong. But I did correctly nail that the Vikings and the Texans would trade back. One of the absolute slam dunks for me, and I mentioned it pre-draft, is that if you have a team who is taken over by an analytically inclined front office who already has a quarterback, they're going to trade down. And that's exactly what they did. The Vikings traded down. They have a quarterback that they just signed to an extension in Kirk Cousins, and they traded back. The Texans are another team that I thought was going to trade back because this is a team that needs a lot of good players, and they seem to be committed to Davis Mills this year, which makes sense for them to trade back and try and accumulate more assets. Last year, they accumulated assets in the form of one-year deals in free agency. They signed a bajillion free agents to one-year contracts. This year, they essentially replicated that by trading down and just getting more picks. Now, that's about all the fun I get to have. Because now, we get to go through all the things that Bruce got wrong. And there were plenty. How about three quarterbacks going round one? That was a swing and a miss. Now, other people swung and missed too. But I think one of the things that we can take away as football fans from this draft is that teams aren't always going to reach on quarterbacks. What I said before the draft was, I just think the NFL is going to do what the NFL does, and that's reach on quarterbacks. But you know what, ladies and gentlemen? The Christian Ponder, Jake Locker, Blaine Gabbert draft, that was a long time ago. Have we really seen a lot of examples? I mean, the Bills did it when they drafted E.J. Manuel. But aside from that, have we seen a lot of examples of teams reaching and reaching and reaching for quarterbacks who were otherwise not considered to be part of a good quarterback class? I don't think so. So maybe I need to let that narrative die and understand that maybe a team will reach on a quarterback, but we're not going to have this mass reaching of quarterbacks when teams are like, you know what? No, I'm, I'm not going to tie my career to this guy who I think is a third round pick here in the first round. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to walk off into the sunset after taking a day two prospect mid or high day one and go, I did it. I did it. Look at me go. So for me, three quarterbacks going round one, that was a huge swing and a miss on me. My three quarterbacks were, ironically enough, the Falcons and Ritter. So I got that right. I just got the wrong... I got the wrong uh, wrong draft pick. I did get the right team and the right player. The other ones I had were the Steelers, who I had taking Malik Willis with a trade up from 20 to 13. That's a swing and a miss. And then I had Kenny Pickett going to the Panthers with a trade down. Also a swing and a miss. So three quarterbacks going round one. I think the thing we can learn from this is maybe teams aren't always going to reach on quarterbacks. Next thing, Ebiketti and Mafe. I had them both going round one. They did not go round one. I thought people would pull edge rushers a little bit more, and they did not. I had Charles Cross going before Evan Neal. I think there was a discussion around Charles Cross being potentially the best pass protector in the league, and I had him going before Evan Neal. That did not end up being the case. People valued the 
length, the size. And in retrospect, the Giants seem like a team who would absolutely fit that. Absolutely fit that. I had Quay Walker going round two, despite the fact that I had people telling me that Quay Walker could have gone round one. And I thought, no, no, he's not going to go round one. I remember telling you, Bills Mafia, that one of my nightmare picks for the Buffalo Bills was Quay Walker at 25. And that didn't end up happening. The Buccaneers standing pat. I really thought the Buccaneers would be really aggressive in the draft because they figure, hey, we've got one more year of Tom Brady. Let's go get it. Like, let's go after it. I thought they'd stand pat and take someone who could help them right now, or they would even trade up and do that. And that's not what happened. So the Buccaneers are not going as all in this year as I perceive that they went in all last year. The Packers taking a wide receiver. I had the Packers taking a wide receiver in the first round. And to be fair, I I don't think that this is necessarily a bad move because I had them taking Jahan Dotson, but he didn't make it to 22. And the Packers had a shot at a wide receiver, but the next team to take a wide receiver was the Packers with Christian Watson. So you can't really complain about them taking a wide receiver not in the first round when nobody took one during the entire time when they passed on one. And they ended up getting two defensive players who can come in and help them right now. And the last thing I got wrong was Gordon in round one to the Buffalo Bills. Kyler Gordon, cornerback Washington. I thought maybe the Buffalo Bills were going to have a a fundamental change when it came to scheme on defense. And they would want someone who would give a little bit more press man. But instead, they took Kyir Elam, who can still do that press stuff, right? But Kyir Elam has the length, has the long speed, has the intelligence. He absolutely fits as a zone corner across from Tredavious White. So there isn't going to be a fundamental shift in scheme that would necessitate the Bills taking a player like Kyler Gordon. So that's what I got right. That's what I got wrong. We are going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. I've got some emails to go through. Stick with me. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, and thank you for joining me for this edition of the Bruce Exclusive, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. We have some emails to get through. Evan says, okay, so I have a friend who is both a Steelers fan and a sports betting junkie. I think the guy who successfully picked the Bengals to make the Super Bowl and picked the basketball Final Four before the tournament started. And he shocked me when he told me that he's putting money on the Bills as the one seed Super Bowl champs, Josh Allen MVP and Super Bowl MVP. I reminded him that the last quarterback to win both the regular season and the Super Bowl MVPs was Kurt Warner. His response was, yeah, we're overdue based on the law of averages. I know that's not how the law of averages works, but I'll run with it for this take. So here is a bullet point list of what happens. Cook is Offensive Rookie of the Year, replicating Alvin Kamara's 2017 season. Davis leads the NFL in wide receiver yards and touchdowns. Diggs is second. Shakir leads the league in yak. Josh breaks Peyton Manning's single-season passing touchdown record. Defense leads the league in both sacks and turnovers. Leslie Frazier's bend-but-don't-break defense is put to the test, with the team breaking the record for most interceptions for touchbacks in a single season. I think you mean interceptions for touchdowns. Tyler Bass finished with only 22 field goals, but is 71 for 72 on extra points. Areza only punts 19 times for the season. 
The Bills go 16-1, losing only to the Jets 24-21 in a trap game on Thursday night following a short week after beating Tennessee 45-10 on Sunday Night Football. In the Divisional, the Bills win 38-14 against the Chargers. In the AFC Championship game, the Bills win 49-0 against Baltimore. In the Super Bowl, Kair Elam seals the game 38-31 with a 65-yard pick six on the final pass of Tom Brady's career. Josh wins MVP, Super Bowl MVP, with 380 yards passing and four touchdowns. Gabriel Davis gets two, Stephon Diggs gets one, James Cook gets one. Trey White wins Comeback Player of the Year, leading the league in takeaways with offensive coordinators erroneously trying to see if they can target him on a bum knee. Cook wins Offensive Rookie of the Year. Davis wins Offensive Player of the Year. Gregory Rousseau finishes second in Defensive Player of the Year to Trey White. Khalil Shakir leads the NFL with three punt returns for touchdowns. Cap goes up slightly more than previously thought to $238 million, and Bean returns most of the Super Bowl championship roster, except for Jerry Hughes and Emmanuel Sanders, who officially retire after both are signed following some late-season injuries to Jamison Crowder and Shaq Lawson. Sanders is also the first person in league history to catch a touchdown pass less than one week after being a host on Good Morning Football. Well, that was fun. Now, it should be noted that Evan sent this to me before Jerry Hughes signed with the Houston Texans, but it could still work. He could still get cut in the final cuts, and this could still absolutely work. I want to talk a little bit about Cook and Kamara. One of the things that's popped up a little bit on social media recently, and it was kind of stoked a little bit, by Dan Orlovsky when he mentioned that Cook was a, quote, Kamara-like player. And I got to be honest, I respect Dan Orlovsky as an analyst. I have a very significant disagreement with the idea that James Cook is similar in traits to Alvin Kamara. Kamara is markedly bigger than James Cook. I think he has absolutely elite contact balance. I mean, the absolute top of the line when it comes to contact balance, which I don't think is something that I would consider to be an exemplary trait of James Cook. I think if you want to talk about usage, if you want to talk about the stylistic usage, and by that you mean splitting him out wide, having him run a route, then sure, I'll get behind that. But I think they're very, very, very different players. I think that James Cook is probably a little bit faster from an explosive standpoint, but he is markedly smaller, has a vision level that I don't trust as much as Alvin Kamara's and contact balance that Kamara has at absolutely elite levels. So I don't think they're overly similar prospects at all. And I know that that is something that's been percolating its way around social media. It's something I disagree with fairly strongly. Now, that does not mean that I don't like James Cook. I do like James Cook. That doesn't also mean that I don't think James Cook has a potential to be a very, very good player in the league. Even if he does become a very, very good player in the league, he would become a very, very good player for different reasons than Alvin Kamara with different skills than Alvin Kamara. It's like saying Tom Brady is an elite quarterback. Josh Allen's an elite quarterback. Therefore, Josh Allen and Tom Brady are the same. They're not. You can have two players who are both really, really good and they go about it completely different ways. And for James Cook, I I mentioned on social media not too long ago that I really think that the first line of business for James Cook is to get him up to speed and start working on the development as far as a pure runner and as far as a pass blocker. Because I've mentioned this before, and that is overt amounts of offensive predictability in personnel comes from specialization. 
If you have a player who, when they're on the field, the defense goes, oh, he's going to run a route. Like, that's what he's going to do. If James Cook is on the field and the defense goes, he's going to run a route or he's going to run outside, that's it. That's what he's going to do. That immediately gives an advantage to the defense. The more things you can do, the less predictable you are, the better off you'll be. And specialization, I've never been a huge fan of overt specialization. It's one of the reasons why when I was on the Locked on Bills podcast earlier this week with Joe Marino, I picked Rashad White over James Cook. That's not because I don't think James Cook is a good player. I like James Cook, but I prefer my running backs a little bit more well-rounded. I don't like tipping my hand when they're on the field. It's the same way I feel about tight ends. It's the same way I feel about tight ends. Give me Dawson Knox over Mike Gusecki every day of the week. Literally every day of the week. Gusecki doesn't block. He doesn't line up in line. It's just not what he does. He's a big slot receiver. But the point of having these 12 personnel versatile looks is that you can do a lot of different things. It's one of the reasons why I like the idea of having OJ Howard and Dawson Knox on the field at the same time, especially if you can get James Cook up to speed as a pure runner and as a pass blocker, because that gives you a lot of opportunity to mix and match plays while staying in the same formations. There was a tweet going around not too long ago that said, I truly believe that every NFL team wishes they could do a 12 personnel base offense. And I've mentioned to you on this podcast before that I am a huge fan of 12 personnel. I really truly believe if I had the right horses and I was a GM, that would be what I would want to see. Because I really believe that you can do a lot of things, but those three pieces, your two tight ends and your running back, they have to be able to be versatile. They have to be able to catch. They have to be able to block. You can flex them out wide. You can bring them in tight. That way you can run power. You can run stretch. You can do toss plays. You can go into empty and spread out your four. You can do everything you want with the same personnel grouping. And it puts the defense in an absolute nightmare scenario. An absolute nightmare scenario. So I want to see that. But in order to see that, I think development from James Cook is going to be necessary as a pure runner and as a blocker. I am here for it. I am ready. Let's do it. Moving on to the next email. I have Christopher Nixon. And he says, Hi, Bruce. I'm just wondering how you would assess this coaching record. Three winning seasons and seven losing seasons with a record of 68 and 76. If you can tell me what greatest coach ever has that coaching record, just as a hint, this is his record without the scout behind Josh Allen, obviously. And he gets all kinds of benefit of the doubt in the draft because he had the vision to recognize greatness after 198 other picks, including six of his own. Obviously, we're talking about Bill Belichick here. Now, I want to say this. I don't think wins are a quarterback stat. I don't think wins are a coaching stat either. I think wins are an organizational stat. But I will say this. When it comes to the New England Patriots, they're as close as humanly possible to being a Bill Belichick stat. Why? Because he actually picks the players. If Bill Belichick didn't pick the players, he would be less responsible for the wins and losses. The more centralized the responsibilities are, the closer and closer and closer wins and losses get to becoming a stat that is put on one person's shoulders. Now, they're never going to be that because football is far too complicated of a game. 
But why did I say wins are not a quarterback stat? Because there's so many things that go into winning and losing. But if you're the head coach who hires the coordinators and you're also the GM who picks the players, that has a tendency to centralize a lot of that decision-making. And if it centralizes the decision-making, it centralizes the responsibility. And if it centralizes the responsibility, it centralizes the blame when you don't win. So I do think Bill Belichick is a good coach. I absolutely do. That being said, I do think that he would not be nearly as well thought of if it wasn't for Tom Brady. And I think that that's been pretty much proven since Tom Brady left. So I'm not going to assess those things and say, well, goodness gracious, this is a, wow, it's a really bad coach, this Bill Belichick. I'm not going to do that at all. I agree with Sal Capaccio. I think Joe Gibbs is the greatest head coach of all time. I absolutely agree with that. But I truly do believe that given the fact that Bill Belichick is in a scenario where he picks the players and he coaches them, I think that puts a little bit more responsibility and as such, a little bit more blame on his shoulders. Ladies and gentlemen, we did it. We did the things. What I got right with my mock draft, what I got wrong with my mock draft, what I think we can learn from that because learning is good. Got to some emails, talked about Cook and Kamara, talked about 12 personnel. And you know what? I feel pretty good about it. I feel really good about it. And if you don't feel really good about it, well, that's the way the cookie crumbles. I'm Bruce Nolan, Buffalo Rumblings. Buffalo Rumblings.